Good morning, everyone. I'm called a lot of things, but a good dude isn't one of them. Uh, at least as of late. It's great to be here with you this morning. Uh, you know, our mission as a church is that we are a transforming uh, community of families that love God and love others. Amen? Amen? So I hope you sense that. I hope you experience that as part of this worship service. And I hope that uh, you contribute to that and everyone has a role and a part to play. So on behalf of Pastor Troy, uh, the elder board and the staff here, it's my privilege and my honor uh, to be with you this morning and sharing this message. Uh, just by way of a show of hands, how many were at leadership launch last weekend? Okay, how was that? Isn't that great? So I want to encourage you, if you haven't had the opportunity to participate at some uh, future point in time, just to take advantage of that. I've gone through both of the leadership launches, and I was skeptical about the first one because I wasn't sure how the time was going to be occupied, and it was an incredible blessing uh, to me and Melissa. And then I was skeptical about the second one because... Uh, I thought it might be redundant and a replication of the first, and it wasn't. It was totally fresh, same content, but just uh, delivered in a, in a fresh, new, and different way. So, and uh, just a transformative blessing, I think, both for me personally and I, I believe for our church and our community as well. So by way of introduction, I've got a question, and uh, this is an easy question. I'm going to ask you if you want the bad news first or the good news first by way of a show of hands. So if you want the bad news first, raise your hand. This guy was on it right away. Okay. <laughs> Good news? Tells me a little bit about this audience. Uh, adjust my message accordingly. Here, here's the bad news. Uh, we recently set a record in Green Bay. Are you aware of that? Most days below zero on record. Okay, I think 50. We may be in excess of 50. In fact, last Thursday was the coldest day on record since 1888. And so uh, those aren't the type of records we want to break, are they? So. I don't know about you, but I'm done with, with winter. I'm ready. I'm ready to move forward, and I'm so excited. Here comes the good news. I'm so excited that it's March 2nd today. Next weekend, March 9th, we spring forward, right? Daylight savings time, so remember that, uh, for church service time. And then March 20th is the official first day of spring. Are you with me on that? Are you with me? Bring it on. So bring on spring. That's my motto right now. Bring on spring. I'm just embracing the last of winter, trying to choke it to death uh, and bring on spring. Uh, so um, here's, here's the other good news. Troy turned 50 this week. Huh? How about that? <laughs> Troy's in California teaching and preaching and, and visiting uh, family. And, uh, but I want you to join me in, in something that I think could be pretty cool and should be pretty special. Uh, what I'd love to do is, and Troy doesn't know that I'm asking you to do this, I'd, I'd like you to write down the following address. Okay, are you with me? Anyone? Anyone? 600 Cardinal Lane. Okay, you know what that is? It's the address of the church, 54313. I would love it if you would join me in a letter and card writing uh, initiative on behalf of Troy. I'd love it if you would write a personal note of thanks or appreciation uh, to Troy if he has moved you uh, spiritually in any way. I think leadership is lonely. I think leadership is hard. Specifically, I think being the pastor of a church put, puts you in a bullseye for spiritual warfare. And it would be great if we could get 365 cards or letters for Troy that he could read one day, one a day over the course of the next year. So first service, people are on board. I asked them by way of a show of hands who's willing to, to join me in that. Okay, if you're willing to commit. If you're not, no, no pressure. Okay, if you're willing to commit, Love to get 365 
stories. I think Troy is really inspired uh, by stories. He's shared that from the platform before. And why wouldn't we get around and honor uh, our pastor who shepherds us and feeds us every week? And I think so often in life, we wait until someone has either died or has left before we pay tribute to them. And I don't think that's right. I think uh, this is an opportunity for us to, to really capitalize and celebrate Troy's birthday and, and affirm and encourage him in the process. Even pastors, and maybe especially pastors, I think, need encouragement. All right, as Bobby said, uh, today we've got a new series, so I'm going to pick up where Jim Wallace left off. I'm going to introduce you to Matthew. I'd like to conclude with a short video by Scott Hamilton from the I Am Second website, and then we're going to do baptism. So strap on your helmets uh, and join me in the adventure uh, of learning about Matthew. Before we do that, though, uh, let's pick up where Jim Warner Wallace left off. Wasn't he good? Man, wasn't he good? I was so encouraged uh, by him, and I, th I think as believers, sometimes we get accused of leaving our brains at the door. I think it's an unfair accusation, but I think as Christians, uh, we really need to, to explore and investigate and build a case for our faith, and I think Jim did a great job of equipping us, and uh, it, it reminded me of, of the verse from Romans 12, 2, where Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay? And in the process of being transformed by the renewing of our mind, uh, the promise that God gives us is that it will enable us to test and approve uh, his good and his perfect and his pleasing will. So it gives us a level of discernment. And so as Christians, I think it's incumbent on us to be thinking believers and to uh, really build a strong and credible case for our faith. So if you bought the book, and even if you didn't, this isn't a spoiler, but this is the last paragraph from the last page of the book. It doesn't ruin it for you, but I think it sets the table for Matthew. And it goes like this, um, Jim Warner Wallace. My life as a Christian took flight the minute I decided to become a case maker. Pause. Are you a case maker for Christianity? God cleverly used all of my experiences as a detective to give me a perspective that I've tried to share. You have experiences that give you a unique perspective that you can share. You don't need to be a detective. It's my hope that the skeptics who read this might at least lay down their presuppositions long enough to recognize, this is the key part, hence the bold and underlined, there is a substantive circumstantial case supporting the reliability of the gospel writers. And that's important for you to know today as we contemplate whether Matthew is a credible source for us to put our hope and our belief in. It's my hope that Christians who read this book will be encouraged to know that God can use you right now in this very moment to make the case for truth. You know, we're living in an uncertain world, in case you didn't know that. Uh, it feels like the landscape and the ground is literally shifting beneath our feet on a day-by-day -day basis. You experienced that personally recently? And um, I think it's important that we do have a strong, incredible faith, and so I want a faith that is unbreakable. I want a peace that's unshakable, and I want a joy that's unspeakable. So how do you get a faith that's unbreakable, a peace that's unshakable, and a joy that's unspeakable? I think you get that through a vibrant, personal relationship with a living God who knows you, he loves you, and he wants a relationship with you. And that's a moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year 
uh, experience, and it's awesome uh, for those of you who can relate to that. Uh, but it doesn't happen through casual or Christ, uh, comfortable Christianity. I think it happens by an intentional commitment on your part and on my part uh, to enter into a relationship with God and really get to know him on a personal level. And doesn't it make sense when you think about it? And Paul was really upfront about this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul says, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, my preaching is useless and my faith is futile. Think about that. I love the fact that Paul was right out front and really challenged those who contended against his faith. Okay? If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then this is a waste of your time and this is a waste of my time. We're going through an in interesting intellectual exercise, but there's no substance here. I want to know that I know that I know that I know that my faith is real. And so that demands some questions and some examination. And you know, 15 years into this faith walk, I feel like I can stand here in all sincerity and say, I know that I know that I know that I know that my faith is real, okay? And I'd, I'd love to be able to, to tell you, and only the circumstance would allow for me to prove it, that I'd put my faith on the line. Matthew puts his faith on the line, okay? All these guys were martyred for their faith with the exception of John. Matthew gets speared to death in Ethiopia. That's how much he believed um, in what he was sharing with others. Okay, so is Matthew reliable? This is the card that was given last week. Anybody get this? Okay, if you, if you got it and you haven't looked at it, I think you, you owe it to yourself to spend some time looking at this. If you look at the center of the card, then we'll go uh, from the top left-hand corner and work around counterclockwise. The question this morning as it relates to this series in Matthew is, is it reliable? Okay, now Matthew was there. Okay, he was a primary source witness. Okay, he lived life with Jesus Christ for three years. So... Can we verify that? Okay, can we corroborate the fact that Matthew was there? Is this accurate? Is his translation of what happened, is it accurate? Uh, and was it delivered in an accurate fashion? Lower right-hand corner, can it be attested to? In other words, did they have an ulterior motive, the gospel writers? Okay, I would say no. They weren't in this for money or anything else. Okay, they were in this because their lives and their hearts got changed through a personal experience with the living God. And then timeliness, uh, can we attest to the fact that they were there? So when you add all this up, I think we've got direct evidence based on eyewitness testimony that at least in Matthew's case, he was willing to die for. So how is it then that we can get a faith that's unbreakable? Okay, there's different answers to that question, but one of them is to read God's word and immerse yourself in God's word as you grow in a relationship with him. And as you get to know him better, I would suggest to you that you'll love him more and then obedience will come naturally as a result of that. Has anyone seen the navigator's hand example? Familiar with that? A few people. Uh, hold your hand up like this, okay, if you will. The navigators have this, what they call this hand analogy, and, and the way it works is like this. They believe that there are different steps you go through in order to read your Bible and come into a relationship with Christ. The, the lowest level of learning is you hear God's word. Next level up is that you read God's word. The next level up is that you study God's word. The next level is that you memorize God's word. And finally, uh, the thumb, the highest level, is that you really meditate and let God's word soak into your soul as you contemplate the significance of it in your life and in the lives of others. And what I would suggest to you this morning is that uh, separate and apart from each other, while those things are good, I think when you bring them all together, you hear God's word, you read it, you study it, you memorize it, you meditate, and then you pray on it. I think when you get a grip on God's word, 
God's word will get a grip on your heart and then transformation is going to take place in your life. And I don't know how it happens separate and apart just from that, from that process. So this is a great opportunity for all of us to allow God's word to grip our heart over the next 28 days and have this shared experience that I think supernaturally is going to bring us even closer together as a church. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Anyone say that as a kid? Okay. Did you really believe it then? If you did, it's probably less believable now. As you've aged, you probably understand that uh, words can hurt us, can't they? As you think back on life, okay, who are the words, uh, who has spoken the words that have really built you up or broken you down? And what words have you used that have either built others up or broken others down? I say this to my kids sometimes. Okay, this is a tube of toothpaste. Okay, if anybody needs it, you can come grab it after I'm done with the illustration. Okay, words are like the toothpaste in a tube, right? Easy out, tough to get back in. In fact, I'll, I'll make a wager with you. If anybody can squeeze the tube and have the toothpaste come out and get it all back in without making a mess, I'll give you five bucks. Anybody want to do that? That's all, she said. Okay, doesn't really matter what's squeezing the tube of your life, does it? Okay, the pressure, the stress, whatever it is, whatever comes out of the tube is what's in the tube. Whatever comes out of your life, the overflow of your heart is what the Bible calls it and translates into your words is independent of the external pressures. Okay, I would, I would ask you what's inside your heart. Okay, you putting God's word in your head, in your mind, and in your heart so that when the pressures of life squeeze you, the things that come out of your mouth are honorable and pleasing to God. I had a... Uh, a Phi Ed teacher in middle school, Savish Junior High, Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. His name was Pete Sorensen, and we had a Phi Ed unit. And, you know, he taught us, you know, don't goof around on the equipment, so forth and so on. You know, middle school, I was seventh or eighth grade. I, I was jag-bagging on the equipment before class started, and he caught me. I should admit that as superintendent of school, but um, this is what he said. This is almost 30 years ago. He says, LaCroix, you are as dumb as a mud fence. Now think about that. Really? <laughs> what does that mean? Well, I kind of knew what it meant, but, uh, you know, 30 years later, that still rings in my ears. Okay. Oh, I don't believe it, thankfully, or I wouldn't be standing up here, but words can, can build you up or break you down. You know, as a middle schooler, I think it did cause me to take pause. I had another uh, high school Phi Ed teacher who was my wrestling coach, Larry Marcianda. He was tough but tender, and I remember standing in the, the line when you, uh, sorry for this visual if it's disturbing to you, but prior to a wrestling meet or a tournament, uh, you take off all your clothes in the locker room except for your jock, and you line up with all the other guys that you're going to wrestle. So I'm in line with all these other guys and uh, waiting to get weighed in. There was this guy named Dennis Quinlan from Iowa Grant. We were down at the Whitewater Tournament. He was just built like a brick outhouse. I'm like, wow. I was a sophomore. I remember looking at him thinking, wow. Guy looks bad. <laughs> You're kind of sizing up the competition. And so I said to my wrestling coach later, I said, this Quinlan guy is just, you know, something else. And with, with little or no fanfare, he says to me, you'll look like that by the time you're a senior. And I thought, he really believes that. And just for a moment, I felt a little taller and a little stronger and a little prouder. And while I never looked like Dennis Quinlan, I did, I did end up winning that tournament two years later as a senior. So, so whose words have built you up as you think about it or been meaningful to you or whose words have broken you down?
More importantly, and this is really the, the, the larger of the two questions, um, which words of Jesus are personally significant to you? If your Bible was taken from you today and you were never to get it back, do you know enough of Jesus' words to sustain you for your remaining years? That's an important question. As I think about the Gospel of Matthew, I love Matthew 6, 33 and 34. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Matthew 14, 27, uh, Jesus is coming across the water in this raging storm. It says the disciples are in the boat. They're freaking out. They're terrified. And Jesus sees their reaction and he says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Isn't that great? Okay, you can use that today if you're in a situation where you're, you know, you're worried, you're fearful, uh, you're concerned. Take courage. It is I, Christ says. Do not be afraid. Matthew 22, we have the great uh, commandment. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you have the great commission. Uh, today we're going to camp out on Matthew 11, 28 through 30. And so you can turn to that if you want. I think it's 51 of the sweetest words in the Bible. And Troy asked, you know, what part of Matthew I wanted to take. This one came to mind immediately because of some recent events in my life. And so it may have looked like this, okay? Um, study the picture. It's obvious that the guy in the middle is Jesus, and so our tendency is to look at him. But who else is in the picture? And so this is the personal encounter that Matthew has with Jesus Christ uh, around 2,000 years ago. This is probably Matthew, I'm guessing, judging from the picture. Take note of who else is in the picture. We've got a Roman soldier, right? Probably have some religious leaders around. And this is how Matthew describes his encounter with Christ. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man <clears throat> named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having, transition point, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So what does this tell us about Matthew? This is the type of inquiry that we're inviting you to do over the next 28 days, to kind of think through these passages critically. What do you learn about Matthew just from this passage? Just shout it out. What comes to mind? What do you see? He's here for us, okay? He calls it how he sees it. Anything else about Matthew? He's a risk taker. He leaves everything, right? Doesn't it make you wonder? Doesn't it cause you between verse 9 and verse 10 to ask the question, okay, did he hear Jesus previously? Did he see him performing miracles? What else was happening? We don't know that for sure because this is the account that we have. And I'm not encouraging you to go off on a rabbit trail, but it should prompt you to ask some other questions. Anything else about Matthew? Willing to change. Yeah, that's an important point um, that I'll make in a moment. So basically, you've got a guy who's a tax collector. He's called by Christ. He leaves everything. What does he do, though? Doesn't verse 10 kind of strike you? throws a party, doesn't he? He invites all his friends to meet Christ. So I think there are some lessons here for, for us to learn, uh, even in this day and age, and especially in this day and age, 
when it comes to your personal encounter with Christ, what is your response to Jesus? What was it then when you first came into contact with Christ, and what is it today? So let's talk a little bit about Matthew. The, 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 the state of affairs is this. You've got Israel occupied by the Roman Empire. They've got this oppressive system of taxation. Uh, the magistrates and the senators will hire uh, citizens from the occupied country to, to collect their poll tax and their ground tax for them, the modern-day equivalent of an income uh, and a property tax. And so Matthew, Jewish name Levi, is one of these guys working for the enemy. Uh, I would call him the modern-day uh, American equivalent of Benedict Arnold, okay, the, the great traitor from the Revolutionary War who went over to the, to the British side. So he's actually despised. He's hated by his own people, and yet he's got a lucrative job because not only is he collecting for the Romans, but uh, in all likelihood, padding his own pocket uh, to make a living on the back of his fellow citizens in Israel. Ironically, his, his name is, means gift of the Lord, Matthew, um, he describes himself in chapter 10, verse 3, as a tax collector. So he never refers to himself in the first person singular. So there's reason to believe that uh, there was a humility about Matthew. Uh, it's obvious third person in which he refers to himself. Interestingly enough, Christ not only offers him a different life, but Christ offers him a new life. And the thing that's of interest to me is that as a tax collector, Matthew would have known shorthand. And as one who knew shorthand, it would have been very easy for him to have recorded the actual words of Christ using his shorthand skills. It's kind of a lost, a lost skill or a lost art. Not many people today understand or know shorthand, but Matthew would have had that skill. He wants to uh, communicate to an audience of uh, Jews who have converted over to Christianity from Judaism, and his purpose is singular. We've got four different gospel writers, but we've got one gospel message. In this case... The emphasis for Matthew is to demonstrate that Christ is the King and Messiah who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. So there's three big themes as you read through Matthew over the next 28 days. The theme of revelation, revealing uh, Christ, the coming King, the one who was prophesied about. The theme of rejection. Rejection and the shadow of rejection is never far from Christ and the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, his mother was rejected. Herod rejected him. Uh, the one who heralded his coming, John the Baptist, gets beheaded. The people he came to save reject him. Even in the end, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you see this emphasis on rejection more than in any other gospel. And finally then, it's the gospel that emphasizes more than any other the return of Jesus Christ. And specifically, you see this in chapters 23 through 25 where it says, he will come in clouds with great glory. Some things for you to look for. Let's define a few terms. Okay, we've got one Bible. I apologize if this is basic, but I just want to uh, make the point. There are two testaments in one Bible. There's the Old Testament, right? You see what the word uh, testament means, and then there's the New Testament. So you've got 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament for a total of 66 books that make up one book, the Bible. Uh, interestingly enough, the word Bible means books, okay? The word Bible literally means books. So you've got one author, God, in this case. You've got one book. You've got one theme, the redemption of man and the glory of God. And you've got one central figure, okay? The God-man, Jesus Christ. Which page would you rip out? Which page isn't important? 
Okay. I would suggest to you that every page is important. And what you have in the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And what you have in the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Jesus is never mentioned in the Old Testament by name. Okay, there are shadows, right, and types and prophecies. So you've got the New Testament concealed in the Old. And then Jesus bursts on the scene about 2,000 years ago, and you've got the Old Testament revealed, the one who had been prophesied about is what Matthew wants to describe to us. The gospel of the king, the good news of Jesus Christ. We were separated from God because of our sins. God loved us so much, he sent his son to die for us, and those who are willing to make him the Lord of their life can share an eternal life with him. That's the great news that we have this morning. So from Matthew's standpoint, it's about the king. He traces Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham and King David. He shows that Christ speaks with authority. Uh, in, in Matthew, you see that Jesus said, Moses said so-and-so, but I say such-and-such. Such. So for Jesus to supersede the authority of Moses was a radical thing and one of the reasons why the leaders of the day hated him. And then finally, we see miracles and Christ judging the re religious leaders of the day. Key phrase used over 32 times in the gospel is kingdom of heaven. Why don't you stand? Let's read this together, please. This is a form of worship. Bobby talked about music being a form of worship. I believe that reading God's word together is also a form of worship. So uh, join me if you would, please. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Thank you. Please have a seat. You guys remember Christmas Eve? We did these little finger lights. You guys remember that? The theme was silent, right? Troy called us to two things that night. He said, remember and respond. And this was actually one of the verses, one of the passages that uh, Troy shared on Christmas Eve. I'm going to give you a moment just to kind of look it, look it through again and just think about it. Can you relate to that? Anybody feeling weary or burdened this morning? A lot of lights went up on Christmas Eve. I remember that. What do you do with that weary and with that burdensome feeling that you have? And uh, I was thinking about the, the message, and I went back in my journal to December 9th, and here's what I wrote the week of December 9th. <clears throat> Monday, board retreat on facilities, trying to get consensus on a referendum, met from 6.30 to 10. Tuesday, met with Dr. Eben regarding my elevated PSA levels. Is it cancer or is it a false positive? Wednesday and Thursday, meeting with uh, staff members, uh, some tough issues working through in the district. Thursday, the furnace stops working, $4,000 to replace it. Uh, back to Wednesday, counseled a troubled marriage couple and a single mother at church. Thursday, Amanda Sutrick, one of our teachers, at Bayport High School, died one week after birthing a new son, came back from a conference in Oshkosh to support Principal Frieder and address the staff at the high school. Friday, a series of meetings throughout the day. I'm running low on energy. Later on, there'd be a house fire. One of our teachers lost their house and their pet and everything in it. Uh, later on, there'd be a suicide of the husband of one of our secretaries who jumped off the Leo Frigo Bridge. 
Recently, we had one of our former administrators, Chuck Templer, his house burned down. They got out with the clothes on their back and lost everything else. Um, so so this, this really spoke to me at that time, still, still speaks to me now, and so the question for you and the question for me as we think about words to live by and specifically words of Christ, what do you do in response to those situations? We did the only thing we could do at the staff meeting where uh, the secretary lost her. We just joined hands and prayed with each other. Thank you. He saved me. I almost kicked this off the stage. Okay, that's love. Let's give this guy a hand. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Uh, I didn't know what else to do. Okay, somebody else asked for prayer. Um, so what do we do as a transforming community of families that love God and love others? And how is that manifested in our hearts and in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in this church and in this community? Um, well, I know one thing, you know, the word of God will speak to you and through you and uh, provide comfort and rest to others in the face of those tragedies. So can I get an amen for that? So here we go. You know what this is, anybody? Oh, look familiar? This is a water yoke from Heritage Hill. Okay, that's how they used to carry water, and that's the image that Christ gives to us. It's not an egg yoke. This is a water yoke for those of you who are younger in the audience. And uh, so I'm going to come down here. I need some audience participation in the front row. Can you, can you saddle me up with these buckets, someone? It's too hard to do this on my own. So this is a... Thank you, my friends. This is an illustration of uh, the Jewish people. Uh, the Jewish people felt spiritually bankrupt uh, because of what the religious leaders of the day expected from them. Uh, in fact, they were advised if they could keep the minutia of the law, uh, they could find rest. But there's no way to keep the minutia of the law. They were trying to save themselves through a work-based faith. And with every step of the way, Weary really speaks to uh, driving yourself to a point of physical fatigue and exhaustion and being burdened suggests that I'm already carrying a, lo a load and someone has just added to my load. Okay. Can you relate to that physically, professionally, personally, spiritually? And along comes Jesus Christ. That's the context that these people find themselves in. He, he offers a personal invitation. To them, the same personal invitation he offers to you today. He says, come. The word come literally means believe. Okay, so the image in my mind, if uh, Christ is the cross over there, is that you've got a people who are walking away, perhaps from Christ, and this invitation to come is one uh, where they turn and, and repent because they realize in their, in their spiritual bank, I can't do this. Okay, I'm working so hard. I'm so fatigued. Okay, I'm trying to keep the law. I'm trying to all these man-made things that are being foisted upon me, okay? I'm getting chafed and burdened in the process. My back is aching. I'm breaking down, okay? And Jesus issues this, this invitation to come, to turn back to him. So what was it like for Matthew? Was he walking away from Christ? Was he observing him from afar? Was he kind of maybe slowly moving toward Christ, not quite sure what to expect? Okay, and maybe some of us find ourselves in that position today. But the power of the invitation is in the personal pronouns. Look at the personal pronouns that are underlined. It's me, right? And it's I. It's Christ is saying, come to me. Okay, I will give you rest. Nothing else is going to give you the rest 
you're seeking, friends, apart from Jesus Christ. And I've tried to find it, okay? It's not out there. I've read the self-help books. I've tried to satisfy that through possessions and position and, uh, you know, you fill in the blank for you, okay? And uh, my personal experience has been it, it never satisfied. It was fleeting. It was a chasing after the wind. And so you've got a personal invitation from the living God who invites us to come to him. It's open to everyone. It's universal. He says all. And then he'll give us rest. So um, this is going to be interesting, Danny. I'm going to try to do this. Okay. Hey, not bad for an old guy, huh? <laughs> Probably pulled something. <laughs> you get workman's comp for this, Bobby. <laughs> All right, now I can't get my slide to go. There we go. So here's the yoke. Take my yoke. So it's volitional, right? Christ never forces us to do anything. He invites us to come. He offers us his yoke instead of my heavy, burdensome yoke. And then he says, learn from me, which is an, uh, the process of discipleship. We are believing learners or learners who are believing. That's what discipleship is. Okay, we are lifelong believing learners. If you're a Christian, you're n you never stop learning. That's why we want to read the Gospel of Matthew. I've read the Gospel of Matthew before. I need to read it again. Okay, I want to get back into to the Gospel. I want to learn from him. And this is the, the most beautiful part of the passage and the one that touches me um, the most. It's the only place in Scripture that Jesus describes his character. I would challenge you to find any other place in Scripture where Jesus describes his character. He says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Why would I trade my yoke for his yoke? Okay, his yoke has got to be heavier than my yoke, right? And he says, no, I put my faith and my hope and my trust in the one who's been faithful, okay, the one who died for me because he loved me so much. So it's because of his gentleness and his humility that I'm willing to exchange yokes as I repent and turn to him. And then for the second time, he says, you'll find rest for your souls. So... Really, it's this, the image I have in my, in my mind is taking this heavy, weary, burdensome load that I can't carry and releasing it. Now, this isn't easy believism or cheap grace, friends. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying come to Christ and love is going to be, or life is going to be peaches and cream. Okay, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, Right? But take heart, I have overcome the world, is what he says. So, and ironically, you know, Jesus would have made yokes, don't you think, in his shop, in his carpentry shop? So I think he knows what he's talking about on both a spiritual and a personal level. Who wants rest for your souls? Doesn't that sound inviting to you this morning? In this crazy, hyper-busy, chaotic, confused, dark, sinful, fallen world, Okay, I want rest. Okay, I need rest. And there's only one place where I can experience that rest, and that's in the person of Jesus Christ, and it's his strength okay, that gives me the ability to move forward. It's not my strength, it's his strength. So when you turn to him and you dump your burdens at the cross and you put on the yoke of Christ and you become a disciple and you learn from him and you trust him because he's gentle and humble in heart, He's not hard and burdensome and oppressive. He tells us that in his word. Okay. Uh, that's when you find rest for your souls.
So I want to go to a short video now that illustrates the point. It's, a, it's an I Am Second video by Olympic gold medalist Scott Hamilton. It does a nice job of bringing together some of the Jim Wallace comments as well as some of what we're seeing here in Matthew, and then it's going to lead us into uh, the invitation to baptism. I want you to look at this Jim Elliott quote before we go to the video. Jim Elliott was a martyr for his faith. It inspires me when I see that. Do I need to hit it again, Danny? I don't think anyone's truly equipped to go out in front of a billion, two billion, three billion people on an Olympic stage, and you're scared out of your mind, on a 200 by 100 surface of ice, you wonder why you do this because you're so nervous, on two 10 inch lengths of quarter inch wide steel, through this, just get me through this, and you're to manipulate those edges for four and a half minutes and do triple jumps and athleticism and not make a mistake, it's impossible. But I found a way to be just, just good enough <laughs> to win the gold medal. The more I look back on it, I think it's unbelievably awesome. Like, that was me. You know, I always thought if I could be really good on the ice, you know, I could become famous. <laughs> I, I think I'm probably more known for my health problems now than I am for anything I ever did um, on skates. When I was very little, I suffered from a disease that stopped me from growing. It was in and out of hospitals for years, and, and I was never really home. And so what ended up happening was I came back from kind of being in and out of hospitals, and I ended up going to the skating club thing just by accident. And I found skating, which kind of took on a life of its own, and, and it progressed. And pretty soon I'm competing. Pretty soon I'm living away from home. Of my role models and, and the people that were teaching me how to live day to day were older skaters. So there was a lot of it that was terrific, but a lot of it that really um, wasn't guiding me in, in any real direction. It wasn't until I suffered the devastation of my mother losing her battle to cancer that something was awakened in me. I knew I needed something more, something better. I think I needed to have uh, some strength. And my mother um, was my source of strength. When she was living, I would disappoint her. But when she, when she was gone, I, I just didn't ever want to be less than she thought I could be. I was happy to just work. I was happy to just entertain. I do well, and I think that was that was good enough. Skating had given me life as a child, and it given me, you know, kind of a strength as an adult. But what was about to happen uh, really changed my life forever. You know, cancer, it put me into a phase of my life where I just needed to kind of 
sort it all out. I just survived something. Why? I, I survived something that took the most important person in my life off the planet, that was my mother. She died of cancer and I survived. What's my purpose now? What, what do I need to do? Why, how do I? And a big part of the dust settling was getting with Tracy. And she brought me to the church. She took me to a minister, a man named Ken Durham. And the first thing he, he said to me, which was, was extraordinary, was he goes, you have to understand that Christianity is, is a faith of history. These things actually happened. And I go, okay, that's a good starting off point. And just study what has happened and, and see how that resonates in your own life. And it grew, it just sort of, it's like, okay, I get it. When you survive testicular cancer, um, and you want to start a family, you don't know what the issues are going to be. And um, I prayed that I, I would someday become a father. Tracy and I, we got engaged and married, and then my son was born nine months and two days after we got married. <laughs> so I guess there was a plan there. I thought I paid my health dues when I had cancer, but this was a whole nother issue. Uh, I have a brain tumor. How do I tell my wife? And we have a 14-month-old son. How do, I, how do I tell my wife that I have a brain tumor? I just gotten the news an hour before. I met them at the hotel, and I, she goes, what's going on? And I said, I have a brain tumor. And she took my hands, and without hesitation, she just started to pray. And it was in that moment I knew where I was going to put everything. My trust, my faith, everything. So the most powerful moment of my life. From that moment forward, we just said, whatever it is, whatever it takes, we'll face this. When they're gonna do a biopsy, they tell you, we're gonna drill a hole in your head, and then we're gonna take um, a needle down through your brain and take a piece of the tumor. <laughs> they said, we seem to have found a safe corridor to do this. And I go, well, I'm not using most of it, but um, they tell you all the things that can go wrong in that surgery. And I remember waking up and I looked at the clock and it was 10.20. I knew where I was. And then the next thing I saw was my wife come in with a smile on her face. She said, they know what it is. And they, they found out that that brain tumor was one that I was born with, one that I'd had since birth, which inhibited my growth as a young child. That was the mysterious illness I had that they never diagnosed that got me into skating. Who would I be without a brain tumor? I'm five foot four. If I were five eight, if I would have grown those years, five ten, 
where would I be? Who would I be? I could choose to look at it as debilitating, to choose to focus on the suffering. I choose to look at that brain tumor as the greatest gift I could have gotten because it made everything else possible. Makes you want to see the rest of it, doesn't it? <clears throat> Go to IamSecond.com. The most powerful part is yet to come, but I, uh, there's five more minutes left on that, and I want you to, to watch it on your own and be encouraged by, by the story and the testimony there. So, um, you know, it's interesting. We're living in New Testament days, but sometimes it feels like we're following Old Testament ways. And Jesus just says... My grace is sufficient, right? So I want Jesus as my Savior, okay? But I also want him as my Lord. I want to put on his yoke out of love for him. The obedience isn't a demand. It's not burdensome to me because of the faithfulness and the love that he's shown to me. And you see that coming through in Scott Hamilton's video. So his grace, friends, is sufficient. Paul says, I love this verse, and... Romans 1.16, he says, listen carefully, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The Jews rejected him, and now it's a gift that we can receive. So baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. So if your heart's been moved, uh, we want to invite you to come to the front to make a public declaration of your faith. That's what they did in Old Testament times and New Testament times, and that's what we want to do this morning. We want to celebrate with you if you've been moved, um, even this morning, uh, even if you didn't prepare or go to the class. Uh, if you know that you know that you know that you know, okay, this is an opportunity for you to come forward and make that public uh, profession of faith. So I want to invite you to do that as uh, the band leads us in worship. And in the course of doing that, we see this bridge that we can step across. Okay? His yoke is easy and his burden is light and we'll find rest uh, if and when we accept that personal invitation to step across the divide.